Yes, Blockbuster Film School. This is Blockbuster Film School. Welcome in to the spooky, spooktacular Halloween episode we do annually here at the wonderful Blockbuster Film School. I'm Alex Bonner, your host, joined as always by your host with the most, Mr. Nicholas Souderman. Chest vagina! <laughs> so many creepy penis monsters! It's only creepy if you look at them. Well, they are covered in a lot of slime. Yep. If you haven't figured out what we're talking about yet, that's because we've chosen, as our spooky director, the master of the quote-unquote body horror genre, as well as really good at some other versions of horror as well, Mr. David Cronenberg. Also, if you play the episode, doesn't it say, like, the name on it in there? I think it does, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, you might have already guessed, yes. Maybe you're listening to this, you know, just uh, randomly. Autoplay? Autoplay. Welcome. I don't listen to podcasts. I don't know how they play. That's a fair point. It was a genuine question. I wasn't being a dick. No worries. I usually decide which podcast I want to listen to. Yeah. Do I always read the description? Not necessarily, no. I just click it because I know I like that podcast and I will listen to the new episode. But we are talking about Mr. David Cronenberg this week. And as usual, Nick, what was the first David Cronenberg film that you ever saw? I haven't seen any. Also, super producer Brian Tepps is here. Hi, Brian. <laughs> he is currently turning into a giant fly. We he haven't is, told him yet. His back is very hairy. There's like threads coming out of his shirt that looks like. He's regurgitating vile onto a sandwich right now. His back looks like a bunch of bass strings sticking up vertically. It's a look. Yeah. It's a whole look. I appreciate that. I'm into it. Yeah. He won't let me braid them. He won't stop fucking around with teleporters no matter how much we tell him to. Now, I know, Nick, you are a big fan of Mr. David Cronenberg, so I know that's a straight-up lie. Yeah, I'm going to come out and just say it right now. Mm. And I realize he has a lot of fans, but they're mostly nerds. Sure. He hasn't had one of those moments where, like... Okay, so the first movie I saw by him was The Fly. Cool. And I think that's mostly what mm. people go off of. Sure. Like, there's a bigger crowd for Videodrone, and, like, the people know the head exploding from the GIF. I think David Cronenberg is the most underrated horror director there is. People don't understand that even his movies that are not horror films are horror films. Yes. Map to the Stars is a horror film. Mm -hmm. History of Violence is a horror film. The one with the Russians. Easter Promises. Yeah. Cosmetology? Yes. Yeah. Cosmetology? Cosmopolis. Cosmopolis. Yes. Like a limo for a day? Jesus Christ. (laughs) So like... (laughs) Everything he does is a horror film. Yes. And it's just nuanced and crazy or not nuanced at all and just fucking. And just the wildest special effects, no matter what. Like, even as you said, in the ones that aren't necessarily like his traditional body horror where there's mutants and strange things, the violence in these movies where there isn't any of the sort of science fiction-y body horror stuff is still astounding and wild and very, very terrifying. (laughs) Like he made a movie called the history of violence. And you know, when you watch it, it's pretty violent. It's pretty violent. Weirdly. My first movie that I ever saw was also the fly. I randomly as a kid saw it. It was on TV. So that's where I saw it too. We were born the same year. So I feel like it was a weird thing too. It's because like the fly was on HBO, but it was also on 
like Fox and USA edited mm-hmm. his shit. Yeah. So it'd just be like, he'd be in a bar. You're like, what do you fucking think you're doing? Or like, what do you do you're doing? You would see him go, Bleh, and then the guy would just run away and you had no idea. It was like, what's going on? This movie, this, <laughs> yeah. did, did they erase the whole scene? Also, he lives in New York, right? So him being super fucking strung out and weird looking, would that really scare anyone in New York? I don't know. <laughs> You mean Toronto as New Toronto York? Toronto as New Well, a lot of, we'll talk about that. We'll get into it now about Mr. Cronenberg. If you don't know, he is a Canadian filmmaker. Canadianness will constantly come back. He even talks about it. He's very interesting about it, about how even when he makes movies that are set, particularly in America, he has a very interesting take on it because he himself is not an American, but is America's saner and more boring cousin to the north, Canada. So there's still a lot of overlap of the culture and particularly like in, say, entertainment and filmmaking and things like that. So also uh, uh, we're recording this on the 11th, on the 10th. I mm-hmm. saw a broken social scene mm-hmm. at Thalia Hall. They are also Canadian. They're from the same town as Cronenberg. They were very confused by whether or not people consider Columbus Day a holiday. He's like, is this a holiday? And a bunch of people started making groaning noises. Like, Fine. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not from here. Yeah. So I imagine David Cronenberg approaches a lot of things in a similar way. <laughs> Everyone gets their Columbus tree out. <laughs> Has their Columbus carols. It's uh, just a noose. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's just a bag of gold that he stole from people. Yeah. As we were saying, David Paul Cronenberg born March 15th, 1943 in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. His parents were both artists, actually. He was from a middle class, from his own words, a middle class progressive Jewish family. His dad was actually from Baltimore, and his mother was born in Toronto. They all were of Jewish uh, Lithuanian descent, where the name Cronenberg comes from. And they both were, as I said, sort of artists. His dad was a writer and an editor for television and His mom was a professional musician who did things for like wrote jingles for commercials and things like that. So both of them were in the entertainment business in Canada. Also, he talked about how his parents and this will be a big thing. Although his parents were identified themselves as Jewish, they weren't religious at all. And religion was never a big thing in his house. And he's talked about how he's at the very least atheist adjacent where I love that. He's he's like, oh, my God. Yeah, he. Brian, we're getting neck tattoos tomorrow (laughs) where he's like, I definitely don't believe in any religion for sure. And he's like, I won't come out and say that there's no God because I have no idea about that. That's as equally ridiculous as saying his words that there is one. But he's like, well, maybe I don't know. Maybe there is. But it's interesting in his movies. He likes to think about this stuff a lot. And he's even talked about none of his horror movies, for the most part, ever really have anything to do with like truly spiritual supernatural stuff. There's not like ghosts. There aren't demons, if you will. You know what I'm saying? There aren't. The killer's already inside the house. Yes. <laughs> it's in your organs. <laughs> yes. It's your teeth. He's Yes, he's way more into like things having to do with people getting diseases in a way or some sort of strange infection or body dysmorphia in some bizarre way. Your head just explodes. Literally, yeah, through telepathy that the government forced into you. It's bizarre. So we'll get into, if you haven't seen any of his movies, there's definitely some you should see. But just saying as a kid, he was super into reading. He was really into science fiction. He read a ton of comic books, particularly like EC Comics, which if you don't know EC Comics, that were like the big horror comic publisher at the time. 
him and his parents were really into movies and they were particularly kind of a little different than your average movie nerds because they really liked weird movies. He talked about as a kid, he saw Freaks and Alphaville and, you know, Onshian Andalou and like the 400 Blows, these movies that you wouldn't usually show to kids. You know, the average kid now, you'd probably like show them The Lion King or something instead of Freaks. But, you know, different people, different strokes, different folks. And he said that the scene in Bambi where Bambi's mother, spoiler alert, gets murdered was terrifying to him and it stuck with him his entire life and said it was maybe the most powerful moment in the history of cinema. It's like, it's interesting. He already was big into writing. He had a keen interest in science, particularly botany and lepidopterology, which is the study of butterflies and moths. And that led him to get the owner's science program at the University of Toronto in 1963. But he decided he didn't really like science that much, and he switched over to English and literature to continue being a writer. He then graduated and decided that he was going to start working himself just kind of in underground cinema. He just straight up went for it. He started making movies and seeing if he could get them financed. And he made his first two movies in the 1970s. They were super underground. Nick, have you seen either of those very, very early films? The very first one in 1969, he made a movie called Stereo. And then I'm I'm just bringing these two because they were his two truly underground films. And then he made a movie... In 1970, called Crimes of the Future, which he would eventually remake. It's not a remake. It's not a remake. Is it a sequel? Is it, no, no, it's not. He just likes the title. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. No, I've never seen either of these. Um, Me either. He just recorded them silent and then had people like narrate over it. That's wild. Yeah. That's interesting. I did not know that. Those first two films, even though they were underground, and like you said, they were shot super low budget to the point where he didn't even record sound um, and did it afterwards. They still had that Cronenbergness, I guess, and they still kind of jumped out and scared people at film festivals. And that led him to getting his first paid gig on only his third motion picture that he would make, which was I have definitely seen this one. Um, his third film in 1975. It took him five years to actually get it put all the way together. Um, it is a film called Shivers. It's also occasionally called The Parasite Murders, where it's been released sometimes. And they came from within has three titles, which I like. I've heard of they came from within. I didn't hear of the other one. Before. Mm, I assume those are probably just different countries. Yeah. Them different names because the term shiver may not make sense in some places. I guess he even at one point wanted to call it frisson, which is the French for chills. Mm. And they were like, dude, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> and if you've never seen it, it's produced by Ivan Reitman. So that's a big thing. Ivan Reitman liked him. I mean, right, would go on to make Ghostbusters and tons of different movies. And Very un-Cronenberg films. True, but interesting that they were friends because Ivan Reitman definitely does like... Yes, it was another Canadian. Yeah, and he does like horror sci-fi stuff. And obviously he has a very different way of doing it. But when you think about maybe like Ghostbusters and stuff, like there's a lot of slime and a lot of weird... You know, it's like a more fun version of Cronenberg. Not that Cronenberg's not fun, I'll say. What did you think of Shivers, Nick? I thought it was fucking great. Yeah. It's creepy as shit. The sex in this is not fun. Mm. A lot of it's not cool. 
But the movie is pretty fucking great. Just like that first dude dying is fucking crazy. Can you not like this? So it starts off with a woman being murdered and then this dude pours acid in her wounds and like cuts her up and then he commits suicide. And then like, uh, I don't remember if it gets in the water or if it just gets in the air vents. But then like people start like trying to fuck everybody and murder everybody. Oh, man. And it's like the whole apartment building. It's like this big ass bougie <laughs> Quebec. I've never been to Canada. Sure. I don't know what bougie is in Quebec, especially in 1975. Yeah, exactly. They eat their poutine with chopsticks. Oh. But like, yeah, it's fucking nuts. And then it gets super weird and super Cronenberg-y where it's like, there's like kids involved. And then there's like a weird, crazy pool scene at the end where it's like, the end of this movie reminds me of Dawn of the Dead, the original one, where like it's just that weird, wacky mall music and just the zombies have taken them all over again. Except this time it's a bunch of like Canadian sex freaks. Yeah, I I swear that's such a wild idea, too, that like instead of turning into brain zombies, they turn into like sex freak zombies yeah. where that's all they can think sex of. Sex pests. And they're literally like after each other and they're just automatically you can see some of his tropes of a disease sexuality being like truly perverted. You know what I'm saying? Like turned weird and people freaking out at each other because they're kind of doomed. They don't know what's happening, but they're doomed. There's also this, the claustrophobia, mm. even though it's a big fucking building, they're trapped in the building. Yeah. They're not safe in their home. And that's sort of the body horror like concept in like that where he starts from with it. Cause it's like the whole idea is like, you're just a brain stuck in a meat popsicle. Yeah. And you're like terrified because it's coming from within. Literally, it's a title. Like it's coming from within. Mm-hmm. Like he started off there. You're not safe. No, no, that's a that big trope in all of his movies that you're, you're never safe. Fun little thing too. It would be one of the few times where he actually did this, but in Canada, their film board, the Canadian film board pays a lot of money towards films. Usually they wouldn't do stuff with, Fiction, they, you know, usually the Canadian Film Board does a lot of stuff with like documentaries and Cronenberg decided to try and ride with it and kind of lied to them and finagled money from the Canadian government. And the weird bit is, though, when it came out, it had this like crazy reaction where people were like, this is horrifying and pornographic and you used taxpayer money to make this sick, demented movie. Well, what that did, though, was it made people want to see it and For like 30 years, it was by far the most it was like the only movie that not only made its money back that was financed by the Canadian film board, but it made a bunch of money. So even though they were kind of mad at him, they couldn't be that mad at him because he had made the government of Canada a whole bunch of money. So it was just interesting, though, because that launched his career because. You know, the Canadian critics were some of them. Some of them obviously were like, this is awesome and crazy and I love it. Some of them were like, this is a gross piece of pornography. And a. It, a and he oh, it should be about hacky and hockey sweaters. They're called sweaters, not jerseys, your hoser. Right. Yeah. So I imagine it's something like that. After that, he basically has a little bit of money and he's financed by an actual film studio. And he makes a movie in 1977 starring Marilyn Chambers, who at one point was a pornographic actress, but he hires her because- Who of us have not been? That's true. Especially these days. You got to make money somehow. Yeah. In this economy. And so 
he makes a movie in 1977 called Rabid. Nick, what did you think of Rabid? I don't remember anything about this movie. That's fair. I'm not going to lie. The tagline is, pray it doesn't happen to you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's basically kind of a similar thing. There's a disease that turns people. Well, it's even crazier. She grows a clit underneath her armpit. Right. And she uses it to like feed on people. Correct. And did it because she got like a weird surgery. Yeah. It was to try and fix something, but it created like a vagina in her armpit that then made her like want to eat people with it. Yeah. I think if I remember correctly. Um, yeah. Yep. Also, she has a like a red stinger that sort of comes out of the orifice at one point I remember, and it like pierces the victims and like draws their blood. And it's that way he can have a vagina and a weird penis that attacks people. It's both. Yeah. I don't really remember it all that well, but it's a similar sort of deal. But once again, it was made for, you know, about $500,000 and it made in its box office run just in Canada, like a million bucks. So once again, a successful horror movie, this would get him some money. In 1979, he made a movie called Fast Company. Also, little known fact about David Cronenberg. David Cronenberg, one of his secret things, maybe not secret, he definitely talks about it. He loves car racing. He loves Formula One. He has tried to get a couple of his like car racing movies made, which have never been produced. One of them got turned into a cool graphic novel book called Red Cars, but it stars William Smith, John Saxon, who's a secret B-movie actor that I always loved. He was in Enter the Dragon. Claudia Jennings, Nicholas Campbell. He's on Nightmare on Elm Street. He was also in Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, John Saxon has a, pops up in a yeah. lot of stuff. And Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Yes, totally. And Freddy's Dead, the final nightmare. That is correct. Yeah, It John- was not the final nightmare, but he was in it. <laughs> this aging uh, race car driver, he's trying to make like a refinements to his engine. And when it blows up, he decides that he's going to try to make an even weirder engine. And... It basically is like it's a racing movie, but it is a little weird. And there's definitely like weird sex things in it. And there's once again, cars blowing up, cars crashing, that giving him boners, which would also come back. And uh, what'd you think of Fats Company? I've never heard of it till today. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, man. I saw it years ago. I like rented it for Blockbuster and remember thinking it was kind of cool. It was a racing movie that was weird. And I assumed it was just going to be some cheeseball 70s race movie. And it was directed by David Cronenberg. So it was a little weirder than that. It was not a huge hit. But that same year, he broke up with his wife the two years before. And then he wrote a movie, a horror movie that would be kind of his first big breakout across the board hit about how much he hated his ex-wife. That's true. (laughs) It's how terrible, though. Everyone is yes, yes. in a marriage. Mm-hmm. It's more just how terrible the idea of marriage is. And when you enter into one, you are somehow evoking murder dwarves to come and kill you. <laughs> and everyone deserves it. Uh, Nick is referring to the 1979 movie, The Brood, starring Oliver Reed, Samantha Egger, Art Hindle. Nick, in a nutshell, as you just kind of said, but what's sort of the plot of The Brood? If someone was like... Plot of The Brood is... This couple goes to therapy, turns out they're shitheads, and then fucking asexual, non-birth-from-human dwarves 
which are basically little kids. Yes. They're just kids. They're just little monsters. This is an Italian movie where they hire. Mm -hmm. This is not fucking burial ground where they hire a fucking 22-year-old short guy dwarf to play a child so they can suck on his mom's tit, which is an actual thing. (laughs) No, the brood is just these fucking kids coming back and get revenge on shitty parents, but they're like deformed. They have all these physical anomalies. They're like, it's fucking nuts. It's It's great. It's great. It's also kind of the first one where he really gets wild with the design of the body horror yeah. stuff, where you start to really see the Cronenbergness. Which is crazy, though, because he considers this his one true, like, straight-up regular horror film. Yep. Like, yep. he doesn't think this is body horror. He doesn't think this is a race car movie. It's just straight up. <laughs> yes. There's no racing in this. I don't no, remember. I don't think so. I, it's I, been a while, but. Yeah. You're it's right. It's fucking nuts. It goes through the normal, like, plot. Yeah. You know, it's like someone turns into a monster. There's monsters. You got to try and stop them. They murder everybody. Somebody survives. It's spooky. You're right. The budget was about a million dollars, but it ended up making, just in its initial release, like five million bucks, which at the time was pretty good for sort of like what was considered kind of grindhouse horror movies. And. It definitely became a cult classic, like most of his movies would eventually be put on the Criterion Collection. And yeah, The Brood is kind of about divorce and parents and fucking up your kids with divorce. Like, this is the thing with Cronenberg. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to say this. As fucked up as the violence is, as cool the violence is, he makes people being torn apart look awesome. Yeah. You're getting bludgeoned to death. You're like, wow, that dwarf knows what he's doing. But- the therapy shit in there where they're like in the marriage counselors. This is just as fucked up as like the murder dwarves. Yeah. The marriage. You're totally right. I remember that it being very visceral, the way that the characters and also he gets really, cause we'll notice this. He loves weird conversations. Yeah. He loves people having weird, intense conversations about fucking strange shit. And sometimes the entire movie where Robert Pattinson <laughs> just talks in a CGI fucking car. Occasionally he goes to a diner to talk to his weird fiance that he doesn't want to have sex with. Yeah. Also, this would mark the first time that he would work with his boy, still one of his good friends and the guy who would score all the rest of his movies, Howard Shore, who made the music for this and would go on to do tons of other stuff, particularly the one that pops up is, um, Silence of the Lambs. He did the music for that, got nominated for Academy Award for it. He did the music for all the Cronenberg movies. He did the music for some Martin Scorsese movies. He did the music for Big. So, I mean, Howard Shore, if you don't know, is a, a big time. I don't player. like Howard Shore. No? I didn't think I did. I don't notice his name when it pops up in the yeah. movies. Super producer Brian was telling me he did the score for Lord of the Rings. You know what? I'm not going to lie. It's because he did the music for White Man's Burden. <laughs> and I was like, is this really a movie? Did he do White Man Can't Jump, too? No, that was Hans Zimmer. <laughs> That's why it's all like big and scoring. And then what band was Hans Zimmer in? Well, Cliff Martinez was in the Chili Peppers. Yeah. And Danny Elfin was in Oingo Boingo. And Hans Zimmer, he was in the Buggles. Video killed the radio star. I had no idea. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Radio star. Uh, you can kind of hear it, too. Like when I think of it, like, but yeah, so he would work with Howard Shore a lot after that. And they're still sort of partners in crime. After that, in 1981, he made an even bigger hit, a movie that is still talked about and is a huge cult classic. He made one of the craziest movies I have ever seen, and it kind of created an entire genre that is still around in a way. But in 1981, he made a movie called Scanners. Fuck yeah. Starring Stephen Lack, Jennifer O'Neill, Michael Ironside, and Patrick McGuhan. In the film, there are these scanners who are psychics with unusual telepathic and telekinetic power. There's a weapons firm that is 
sort of created them. But now a couple of them have gotten loose and they're running around and they've sent the other bad scanners to come and get them and kill them. And if you don't know how they do that is they lock in and they start a scanner fight where they stare at each other like, and they have like a psychic fight and then their eyes bulge out. And then you could tell one of them's winning. And then the other one's like, oh starts sweating. And then their head explodes. So it's craze balls has one of the great posters of all time where Michael Ironside is like, tripping balls and his eyes are rolled back into his head. I remember seeing it as a kid and be like, can I rent this? And my dad's like, you're like five. What's wrong with you? You're a ghoul. You can rent that like three years from now. So what do you think of scanners, Nick? David Cronenberg's version of Akira mm. is amazing. Awesome. Good call. It's so good. Like there are so many of these fucking like, I'll do respect to Akira. I fucking love that movie love my entire life. Yeah. But like, what was that fucking terrible, stupid superhero one? They made it like the low budget and the guy like Josh Trank directed. It was written by that uh, fucking. It's called like Anthem or Saga or something. Uh, some dumb shit. Yeah, I know. Like I, this movie is so good. It's inspired bullshit knockoffs for like the next 40 fucking years. Chronicle. Chronicle. Uh, yes. Fuck you. Uh, <laughs> Josh Trank. Josh Trank. And who wrote it? That scumbag. Wrote Chronicle? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I actually really liked the bit of Fantastic Four that he got to direct. I thought it was pretty nuts. Oh, yeah. I, no, that's good. But like. Yeah. I kind of like Josh Trank. I don't really have that much beef with him, but. I don't now either. It's the guy who wrote it. Max something. Who? who oh, Ma- yeah. What's his face? Yeah. Max Landis. Yeah, he's a creep. Fuck you, you piece of shit. Yeah, Anyways. Kind of Scanners a is great. Yeah. Scanners is fucking great. Yeah. 100% agree. It's chaos. It's <laughs> insane. He's doing one of those things. It's like he looks like he's trying to set a TV antenna with his mind, mm-hmm. and then he makes a motherfucker's head blow up. And it's so graphic and disgusting. I know. It's so good. And I love that it creates like a world, too. He instantly has this world where you're in now this crazy thing where there's some scanners who are good, but they are just desperately trying to stay away from people because they can hear everyone's thoughts and it drives them insane and they're trying to be cool, but it's ruined their lives. And then there's some of them who are like government scanners who are trying to like control it. And they realize things have gotten nuts because then there's a little group of them that's run by Revoc, which is uh, Michael Ironside. And they're trying to like take over the world with their scanner powers. Michael Ironside is one of the greatest voices in cinema history. Agreed. Just gravelly and full of hate. Um, I realize this is not our Paul Verhoeven episode. Mm-hmm. Go back and listen to the Paul Verhoeven episode. Yeah. But just like that part where he's like saying it's slow and dramatic and that in Starship Troopers, they sucked his brains out. Yeah. It's like, you are such an asshole, but that even sounds cool coming out of your mouth. <laughs> Apparently it created such a cool world and was so visceral in its execution of all of these different special effects and soundscapes and stuff that George Lucas, he was definitely up. He was on like the short list to direct Return of the Jedi. He was right there. It was him and David Lynch and eventually went with Mark Wand, but he was definitely in like the final callbacks. He went to Lucasfilm well, for like, thank inter- God he didn't direct Return of the Jedi. Who knows, man? Who knows though? If he had, I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Like the Ewoks would have been covered in sores. <laughs> It's so nuts. Not the Ewoks. Those little pieces of shit. Are the Ewoks? Yeah. 
What's the big dog called? Chewbacca? Oh, okay. What is he? He's a Wookiee. Oh, my God. <laughs> Just for everybody listening, I recently had COVID. My brain is still all foggy. <laughs> What's the big one called? I'm fuck. I don't know, man. What's the, that space dog rides around with his boyfriend? Yeah. So Scanners, once again, at the time... It made $14 million, Right. But now it's like a huge cult film. Absolutely. And like you could still buy a t-shirt of the fucking DVD box art. Somebody came in to, to work mm-hmm. uh, like a month ago wearing one of those shirts. I was like, dude, nice shirt. He's like, cool. And then we talked about Cronenberg for like 10 minutes. And I was like, uh, you just have a baklava. <laughs> You're all right. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> fucking weirdos coming together. <laughs> Cats to and dogs. Greek- Living together. Mass hysteria. Passing out Greek pastries. That's amazing. Yeah. Scanners is amazing. We can keep talking about it, but we should move on just because he's got, he doesn't have like he's, a bazillion movies, but he does yeah, make movies. He does. He, he, he's pretty prolific considering yeah. that his movies take time to make because they're just so graphically detailed and disturbing. Agreed. Usually it's about two to three years between his movies. Yeah. Although he doesn't get the job for Return of the Jedi. So instead he makes a movie. In 1983, that uh, he wrote and directed, it is also another, maybe... Spoilers. Yes. Maybe the craziest, truly, of all his movies. It still haunts me. Scanners has, like, a plot. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not saying this one doesn't have a plot. But Scanners has, like, rules. You know what I'm saying? It kind of theoretically works in our world. There just are these weird telepaths. This is like Like, if Free Jazz was a fucking horror movie. (laughs) Exactly. bop bop Look, now my hands are gone. bop 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 Long live the new Flash. Oh, man. Long live the new Flash. In 1983, he makes a movie called Videodrome, starring James Woods, Sonia Smiths, and Debbie Harry. Woo! It's set in Toronto in the 1980s. It follows the CEO of a small UHF television station who stumbles upon a broadcast signal of snuff movies. From Pittsburgh. From Pittsburgh. And then the layers of deception and mind control start to like unfold and drive him insane. And as Nick said, then the rules of reality start to collapse. And there are chest vaginas that spit out guns and weird tentacle dicks and... His face melts into the television, so goes many mel- melting people, skeletons. Um, let's call it now. Videodrome's yes. gonna be my number one. Oh, interesting. Without a fucking doubt. I had one of the most surreal fucking experiences of my life where I didn't know, and then I just looked at the music boxes thing, and it was showing Videodrome at midnight on film. And I'm like, oh, cool. Bought a ticket online, smoked a joint. Walked downstairs, ran into you guys having a party. <laughs> and they're like, why didn't you tell us? I'm like, I just found out my lips here. Got into a lift too high to be anywhere. Stumbled into the music box, <laughs> like literally stumbled. And yes. then just sat there. And I was like, I had seen the movie like a dozen times at this point, but I was still just like holding on to the fucking, what are these called? The, the armrests? Yes, armrests. Fuck. <laughs> Holding on to the armrests. Yes. And I was so fucking high. I didn't let go until the movie was over. It was amazing. <laughs> it was so weird. And also, because there's people there, much like we went and saw The Thing yesterday, there are people who haven't seen classic films. Yes, that's true. So there are people at the music box, which it was like 80% sold out, maybe 90%. There was like so few seats left. I had to sit in the left third. I hate sitting left third. I, I like the right yeah. or like the center. But anyways- Same. There were so many times people just went, ew, 
I was like, yeah. It is gross. It's disgusting. I mean, he most disgusting of all, aside from the body horror, James Wood's face, <laughs> his personality, yes. his acting, yeah. his soul, his existence. We hate you, James Woods. <laughs> I want to beat you to death with Max Landis, his body. I don't know if I hate him as much as you do, but I definitely he does look like, a, like he does a, support Trump. He kind of looks like if a person was like a cigarette butt. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> I do like that episode of The Simpsons he's on. You, you believed you believed that I was the quickie mart. You believed that. Like Get you, back over here. You, Get you, over you, here. You believed that I was the cashier, I guess. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's crazy. If you've never seen Videodrome, I mean, honestly, if you've never seen Scanners or Videodrome, you really should. They're both wild. And like I said, he referred to it as techno-surrealist and psychosexually cryptic. That's what he said of it himself. It fits. I love that the plot in a way is that this nerd sees a movie that he's intrigued by and he literally is like, I got to find out who made this. Yeah. And it's the past. So there isn't like the internet. So he basically just tries to hunt these people down. And as he hunts them down, it gets weirder and weirder. And just this idea that like by trying to find people who made a snuff movie, your rules of reality would collapse. So, Yeah. It also, I think, made a little bit of a genre, though, of the idea of seeing something like a tape or a piece of media, and then that messes with you. You know what I mean? Like The Ring or like these different horror things where- yeah, that movie from Freaking Sarah Marshall about the phone. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, don't answer your, answer your phone. Hello. Oh, I'm dead. <laughs> so, yes, it created itself its own weird genre. It's mind-bendingly insane. If you've never seen it, I don't know how many Debbie Harry movies there are, but I always remember her in it. She's at Max Debbie Harry Harryness. Still like a dozen. I know, but this one is for whatever reason the one that really jumps out whenever I think of Debbie Harry's acting career because it's so strange. It's this and Downtown eighty one for me. Sure, I get that. Any other thoughts on Videodrome? I mean, obviously we can keep talking about all of these as we go, but James Woods. Starts off in the movie not acting at all. He's just being James Woods. Mm. And then eventually has to become a character because he has to. That's true. He did have to do that. Yeah. Also, we should say Videodrome at the time, it wasn't a huge loss, but it cost like five million bucks. It made like three million at the box office. It was not a mega hit at the time, but like these, it would eventually be on the Criterion Collection. Yeah. People still talk about it. It's Videodrome. It's studied in film classes about surrealist movies and this kind of stuff. So it's absolutely a mega, mega cold classic. But he, in that- Also, more important than that, people still fucking hate it. People hate it. There are still groups out there that hate that movie. Yeah. And that is a sign you made a fucking good movie. Hell yeah. He's always towing that line too. He's such a master at making stuff that is weird and violent and sexual and gross, but never pushes it past this line where- it couldn't be in a theater or you can't watch it. You know what yeah. I mean? It's just right there on the edge, just right there, just at the He knows he's edge. making like, entertainment. Mm-hmm. Yes. He's not making fucking, you know, was it hustle to? Right. Or even going full Lynchian where he's like, I don't care if you don't understand this. Like, yeah, he is like, no, I want you to sort of enjoy this in a weird way, but I want it to mess with you. I want yeah. you to kind of pay attention and care about the characters, not randomly have Bill Pullman turn into a mechanic midway through the movie. Like there's, you know, <laughs> literally this week, Kyle McLaughlin was like, oh, yeah, I don't know what those movies are about. I just show up and he does what he tells me. 
<laughs> That's why he likes you so much, Kyle. In 1983, though, maybe even sensing a little bit that the audiences may not jump to see Videodrome, he also negotiated to do his first real, truly Hollywood movie. He adapted one of my favorite Stephen King books, one of the great standalone Stephen King books. In 1983, he made a movie called The Dead Zone, starring Christopher Walken, Burke Adams, Tom Skerritt, Martin Sheen, and Colleen Dewhurst. I kind of mentioned it earlier, but it's a really interesting, weird story about a guy who has a car accident, and then he's in a coma for a couple of years, and then when he comes out, obviously his life has totally changed, but now when he touches people, sometimes he gets like a flash of the future. So it's this kind of interesting, like sort of lament, like he doesn't know what to do with his life now because his life is totally over. His girlfriend that he loved is now married to someone else. And he's trying to rebuild his life. But meanwhile, he has these spooky psychic powers that he calls the dead zone. And it's a fucking title, by the way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The poster is amazing. That The way that it has the spooky, blurry dead zone font, it's wild. No matter what people think of Cronenberg movies, they have some art that sells the shit out of them. Yeah. No, for there real. Is n- like, I've never seen a trailer for a David Cronenberg movie where I was like, oh, I got to see this immediately. Yeah, I agree. And uh, it was the first time he'd worked with uh, Dino De Laurentiis, who maybe we'll do an episode on him at some point. But Dino was a huge producer in Hollywood, particularly in like the 80s and 90s and started the careers of we talked about it. Like go back and listen to our Arnold Schwarzenegger episode. We have a lot of stuff that Dino took a shot. I, on I refuse to be on that episode just because of Jada De Laurentiis. <laughs> I do not like her and I don't like what she did. To help Bobby Flay, who I also don't like, obviously. <laughs> it's because you, you yelled at him on the street and then you got no fist fight or whatever. <laughs> oh, I just, I verbally accosted him <laughs> and he did nothing, which is hilarious because <laughs> uh, I just said his name. Yeah, for sure. It was definitely maybe his most critically praised of the regular critics, the regular audience. It has touches of the body horror stuff, but I think that the thing that I like too is that he decided to kind of do a, a different thing where he used all of his awesome senses of special effects and everything on the effects for the dead zone, where when Walken would go into his mind, there'd be this weird, like void world where there's all these spooky lights and waves and creepy things that are appearing and disappearing. If anything where he made a quote unquote ghost movie would be closest to this because this guy is haunted by the future and things that other people have done and he doesn't know what to do about it. It's wild. What'd you think of the dead zone, Nick? I saw it once as a kid. Mm. I really liked it. Like Christopher Walken looks cool as shit. He does, man. He's still, he's still young. He's still young. His hair is huge. He's like, he's wearing normal clothes, but he still looks like he's doing like, when I think about this, for some reason, I think of Christopher Walken young Mm -hmm. in a duster. I know it's not right. It's just like does he have a shirt on fall to the that? ice I oh, that was that was not a lot of cows <laughs> don't go he's gonna fall through the ice stay gotta get them don't when I gonna have to shoot myself in the head Michael Cimino I don't know <laughs> it just turns into Tony's friend ask myself Chris would you rather fly or have a tail <laughs> it's not bad it's really not bad it was a decent hit it cost uh, like seven million bucks to make, and it made about twenty million dollars. So at the time, once again, pretty good. And it also kind of endeared him to some of the bigger studios. Now they kind of liked him. 
That will change, but yeah, up and down, up and down, ebb and flow, ebb and flow. Yes. And but more than anything, he will shoot them in the foot. He, he it was produced by Deborah Hill, which uh, we will do maybe a Deborah Hill one. Well, we did John Carpenter. You can go back and listen to John Carpenter, but Deborah uh, Hill deserves her own episode. I agree. Absolutely. But that's where we talked about her the most because she produced a lot of John Carpenter yeah. stuff. She produced a lot of cool horror and sci-fi in the eighties. So yeah, I think we'll do Deborah Hill at some point. I think it's absolutely worth a watch. I like the Dead Zone a lot. And also, I would say that book is worth a read. It's uh, one of his best standalone books. It's not super long like The Stand or something. It's only like 200 pages. Really, really good. Really, really tight. I think that's why it works so well as a movie. Just a little thing, too. He's not a bad actor. And he gets some roles, as little roles as an actor. And occasionally, he even gets a couple of decent-sized roles. So we're getting close to some of those. But in 1986, he then makes a movie... Another seminal, seminal movie. This time, one that maybe more than maybe any of the others that he has especially made so far has really stayed in the zeitgeist of American culture. In 1986, he makes a movie that he co-wrote. It stars Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis, and John Getz. It is called The Fly. And uh, yeah, it's one of the fucking wildest movies I've ever ever seen yeah. Dr. Seth Brundle. It's a juggernaut. Oh man. He took a shot on Goldblum. Goldblum was super young, not a huge actor at the time to star in a movie. Gina Davis either. And uh, it would really give Goldblum his career. And Goldblum's a fucking amazing. In it. Mm-hmm. You watch him turn from a man into a fly. And cause he's so smart. It would affect like Rick and Morty and all these like he's a mad scientist, but he's real. Cronenberg Cronenberg has made so many things that have affected Rick and Morty. He has his own. Yeah, the Cronenberg verse. Yeah, the Cronenberg verse. Like (laughs) his own version of Earth. Yes. Where everyone's just like a mutated piece of shit. Oh, my God. The Cronenberg verse. So obviously the fly is transcendent. It will have huge cultural effects on everyone. It's definitely his most um, financially successful film kind of to date, at least at the box office, it got made for $30. (laughs) Uh, It had a budget of like $12 million and ended up making at the box office $60 million, which is pretty goddamn good in the 80s. And culturally a huge hit, critically a big hit as it deserved. It got nominated for a few Academy Awards and won the Academy Award for Best Makeup. And uh, it would have sequels, all this kind of other shit. Something that I was stuck in my head was that he has like a Cronenberg verse, truly, like not just the Rick and Morty, but like Bar Talk, the company that is the one who makes the scanners, is also the one that employs Brundle and lets him make the weird teleport technology. Also in the plot, he's making a teleporter. If you don't know, he's this whizkid genius scientist and he's making a teleportation system. And when he keeps trying it, like with a baboon, the baboon gets like its skin turned inside out. But this guy's a loon. So he keeps trying to do it. And then eventually he puts himself in, but a fly gets in there with him. So when it teleports, he thinks it worked and it kind of did. But also now his genetics are tied with the fly. And he starts to get real gross real fast. What do you think? Uh, what's your take on the fly, Nick? Absolute masterpiece. Mm. This movie has everything. Ooze, booze. That's it. It's, it's disgusting. Sex. It's absolutely <laughs> disgusting. It's, it is. It's not like a werewolf transformation. No. Like not even like American werewolf in London. This is a man gradually turning into a six foot fly, 
Not like the Simpsons where it's just like Bart, just like, you know, no, this is, <laughs> this is the grossest shit. Yeah. Up until 1986 has ever come out. Like, yeah, it is profoundly disturbing. Just each part of him goes along the way. He starts off getting all this like crazy strength and going and picking up hoochies at the bar and just like knocking them around that, and shit. Dude, that part at the bar where he challenges a guy to an arm wrestling contest and then proceeds to like snap the guy's yeah. arm in half and the bone sticks out and he's already turning weird. So he's like, cool. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's like he thinks he has superpowers mm-hmm. and it just turns into like super self-destruction uh-huh. and it's just absolutely amazing yeah you just watch him fall apart like oh man and going with that thing where he's like the corner he's diseased and he's doomed like yeah. and there's spoiler alert there's not really anything you can do about it but you're gonna watch it because it's crazy and gina davis his other super scientist sort of girlfriend who likes him a lot but now that he's Rundle Fly, he's not the same guy anymore because his personality's changing because he's a fly. He's not a person anymore. He's regurgitating shit onto food before he can eat it. It's the craziest. <laughs> it still spooks me out. Yeah. So it's like seven or eight layers before he turns into just like a brown killing machine. Yes. And then finally, he actually like splits open and a fly starts to come like a giant fly and Gina Davis has to gack him with a shotgun. Insane. In, I like to keep this around for close encounters. Exactly. It's, we do not recommend the fly to star Eric Stoltz. No, no. Which was directed by Bill Wallace, who was the guy who did all the effects for it and did the effects for like gremlins and stuff. So the Eric Stoltz one still gross, but not at the same. It's yeah. not masterwork. It's, uh, but yes, the fly is super gruesome. The fact that it's Goldblum and he's so charming and you just kind of want to follow this guy and hear what he has to say. Like you said, if it's Eric Stoltz or something, eh, I don't know. No one has ever felt sympathetic for Eric Stoltz. Except for maybe Tarantino. Uh, No, (laughs) not him and not even fucking um, Cameron Crowe. Right. (laughs) Cameron Crowe puts that guy in everything. He does. He really Um, does. That's the thing. Like Jeff Goldblum is charismatic and Mm -hmm. you care what happens. And then he turns into a literal monster and you feel bad for him. I know. Like he just, he like, oh, I'm a genius. I'm going to do this. And the next thing you know, he's like melting people's hands off and shit. He's, holy shit. This is so daunting. So it's kind of the Icarus story too. He's hubris. He's flying too close to the sun. He literally melts. There's a part where Gina Davis starts fighting him when he's melting and tears his jaw off. Oh man, it's next level. And you should watch it because it's amazing. With your family. You should watch it with your family on Thanksgiving. Absolutely. Before you eat. Yes, definitely. While you're eating. Skip football this year. Yeah, just have it on in the background. It's a great Thanksgiving movie. Watch it. While you're watching, just have a coffee table with sweet potatoes and the part where you like put the marshmallows on top. Oh, God. (laughs) Regurgitate on your food. You need enzymes. Yeah, the fly is amazing, but we got to keep moving. So, 1988 made another movie that I'm a big fan of. It's a wild one. Another Criterion. And in his pantheon, when you say a movie is really unique, it's got to be out there because in 1988, he makes a movie that's called Dead Ringers. Uh, It's based on a book called Twins. But at that point, Ivan Reitman had already made a movie called Twins, which was very different about how Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito were like Eskimo brothers. They're actual brothers. They're genetic mutants. And 
It's a psychological thriller starring Jeremy Irons in dual roles because they're twin brother, famous gynecologists. One of the brothers is very, very charming. Do you know any famous gynecologists? I don't, but that's like the Cronenberg thing. In this world, you can have that. Yeah. And I'm sure that like at high levels of like, you know, uh, surgeons, you know, surgeons all know who the really cutting edge top members of their field are. So I'm sure in that way, they are famous. You know what I mean? They publish books. They have that kind of thing. So they're not like on talk shows. But one of the brothers, one of the twin brothers, they're identical and they're both played by Jeremy Irons. One of them is very, very charming and the face and the person who is put forward. And they play this thing where no one knows that they are twin brothers because that brother is not that good a doctor, right? The really good doctor is the nerdy one who hides kind of out and doesn't really pop up that much and doesn't like people. And then they meet a woman, Genevieve Bujold. They meet her and they both fall in love with her, which that when you have a weird symbiotic relationship that is reliant on, you know, you guys having this relationship where you're kind of allowed to work in tandem and then you both want the same woman, it starts to get weird and they start to get nuts and they start to get violent and they start to hate each other and it gets real creep show. Uh, Nick, what did you think of Dead Ringers? I really like Dead Ringers. I do too. It's fucking good. It's weird as shit. Mm-hmm. But you put two Jeremy Irons in anything I want to watch. I, man, I'm with you. I, I would watch Jeremy Irons sit across from Jeremy Irons at a coffee dining table mm-hmm. and they just eat soup. <laughs> I would watch that. I and like they murder each other. Oh my God. And I like that one of them starts to go crazy. The smarter one starts making these real weird gynecological tools that look like Cronenberg tools. And he's like, I'm going to fix all the women. He starts <laughs> like, what are you talking about, man? These are weird. And it won like all the Canadian awards. It didn't win anything in America, but it won 10 genie awards. Yeah. And is ranked in the top 10 Canadian films of all time. I mean, I get it. It's great. It's a really insane yeah. movie. I would like to watch it. Like Shakespeare wrote about gynos and their twin brothers. It's really, it kind of is. It's really elite writing. It definitely has a little bit of Cronenbergness to it, but it's really more about just relationships and jealousy and how crazy all things are fair and love, war, and gynecology. That's what they always say. So... Yeah, it came out. It was nuts. It cost $13 million, made $14 million. Eh, you know, what are you going to do? But yeah. like I said, ended up on the Criterion. And uh, I still have my copy of it. That's actually where I got it. I got my Criterion DVD of it at Borders when it was on sale. And went home and watched it and was like, I don't know how to feel about this. <laughs> I mean, I know I liked it, but hmm, am I weird now? Maybe I am. So I feel like a lot of people <laughs> have discovered weird kinks about mm-hmm. themselves. They're just like what they're willing to cheer for. And oh. I think that's what freaks people out. Oh yeah. It's a kinky movie. Yeah. That's for sure. That's the best way to describe it. It's kinky. After that, just a little toss out. I don't know if you've ever seen it, Nick, but he finally has like a real acting role in 1990. He's in the movie Nightbreed, directed by Clive Barker, where of course he, I've seen Nightbreed. where he is Dr. Philip K. Decker, a little reference to his favorite writer of all time is Philip K. Dick. He's Philip K. Deck, er, and uh, he's a mad scientist in it. He's basically the the heavy. He's really in it. Do you remember anything from his performance that jumped out at you? Or anything? Uh, he's much more normal than I expected. Oh my god! He's always like also just like <laughs> just in interview, general, just in general, like yeah. interviews, even interviews yeah. where he's saying weird shit. Mm-hmm. He's just like this mild mannered nerd, Super. yeah, who's just like, well, 
I decided to put Jeff Goldblum on the ceiling because flies have sticky fingers. That's honestly, when he talks, it almost makes it spookier that he's so thoughtful and chill and kind of funny and has cool hair. But as, as you said, just, well, I mean, um, you know, like the violence was, uh, you know, I mean, I wanted it to be sexual, but I also wanted it to confuse you so that you're angry, but also you have sexual feelings. Like he says stuff like that. Yeah. And you're like, well, that, and he delivered it like how, like a, you know, a bank attendant would tell you about like, you know, a credit card APR rate. Yeah. After that, bulletproof glass. <laughs> exactly. Yes. To like, sure you have to leave. In 1991 though, I think maybe the first time he really kind of bites off more than he can chew. I like this movie. I do register. It has tons of problems. It's complete madness. He adapts a movie that was specifically written by a writer, a famous writer named William S. Burroughs. If you don't know who William S. Burroughs, he was like the crazy psychedelic sci-fi writer of the Beat Generation. Accidentally shot his wife. And maybe supposedly, maybe, but they were both high on like tons of drugs. So anyway, we'll get into William S. Burroughs another time. But William S. Burroughs specifically wrote a book so that like the exercise in his mind was so that it could never be turned into a movie. It was so bananas as a book. You could never do it. But Cronenberg decided to give it a whirl. He adapted a book called Naked Lunch. It stars the guy who played RoboCop. Judy Peter Davis, Yes. Ian Holm, who we work with many times. And Roy Scheider. It is about a writer who goes off the rails or possibly into another dimension and has a talking crab typewriter and sort of Jack Kerouac is there. Nick, what do you think Naked Lunch is about? Naked Lunch is about nine minutes too long. Mm. I'm not a fan of Naked Lunch. Yeah. It took me like four or five attempts to finish this movie. And that was over two years. I get it. <laughs> I get it. I've only, it's, I've only, it starts off weird. I mean, knew it yeah. like, okay, cool. He's getting high in his own bug supply. Yes. And then just like, after a while, I'm like, I don't care. This is exhausting. As this you is say, exhausting. It's technically about an exterminator, right? Yeah. Who is killing bugs, right? But in the book, that's all veiled, like talk about writers and drugs. And you know what I'm saying? Like you're an exterminator, whatever that means. And killing the bugs is possibly you're doing hits on the side. It's insane. Uh, yeah. Beetles are talking to him. There's big talking beetles. There's a drug called black meat. That is made from giant centipedes that makes you go beyond tripping balls. It makes you like go into another dimension. After he made the fly, he had a lot of 20th Century Fox gave him a lot of rope and he hung himself with it. He <laughs> basically decided everybody does this eventually. Everybody tries to swing for the feel, rafters. I feel like he didn't hang himself with it. I feel like he just like cut the rope so he could feel a free fall. Maybe. Because, I don't know, he really wanted to make it, and they were still riding with him, even though Dead Ringers had broken even, but The Fly made a bunch of money, so they were like, I I guess, man, maybe. I wouldn't even call it a horror movie. It's bizarre. It's just bizarre. And, uh, yeah, it didn't do great. It had a, like, $20 million budget, made $2 million at the box office. Nowhere near the level of cult classic that any of the other ones would become. Kind of like you said, because it's kind of overwrought and and like Burroughs wrote it specifically so it couldn't be a movie. Anyway, he's like, yeah, I'll teach you a lesson, William S. Burroughs. After that, in 1993, he makes a movie 
called M. Butterfly. I, Ron Butterfly. It's a movie that is based on a play. It stars Jeremy Irons again and John Lone and Barbara Sukawa and uh, Annabelle Levitin. Did you ever seen M. Butterfly? Never heard of it until right now. Ah, uh, yes. It's about is it another f- racing movie? Nope. It's about a French diplomat in China. Oh, wow. And he becomes infatuated with an opera singer who is a spy. And then they have like a spy, sexy romance. It's really just kind of a straight up romance. Very weird, but not a huge box office hit. It was trying to be kind of like Oscar bait. Didn't really work. It takes him three years to make another movie. He does a lot of acting in the meantime, a lot of small roles. Comes back with another crazy one. Initially, it was X-rated. And I remember as a kid, I was right there being like, ooh, what's this movie? I want to see it. And in 1986, he makes a psychological drama that he wrote, produced, and directed based on J.G. Ballard's 1973 novel. It stars James Spader, Deborah Unger, our boy, Elias Codius, Holly Hunter, and Rosanna Arquette. Man, what a fucking cast. It is called Crash. It is not the stupid one where Matt Dillon molests people (laughs) as a police officer. It is about symprophiliacs, people who are roused by car crashes. Uh, Nick, what do you think of Crash? Crash is low-key, just absolutely amazing. It really is it's awesome. It's fucking insane. It really it's, is. It's like everything that he's done before. Because like also, it's like, yeah, like she's got leg braces and it's gross and they're fingering wounds and there's car crashes and people are getting fucking hurt and fucked up. But like, it's sexually nuanced in a way where it's weird and graphic and yeah. it is body horror, mm-hmm. but it's just like the opposite direction of what he normally does. Yes. Yes. It's like if, like it was a daytime horror movie. <laughs> yeah. When I first saw it, I kind of thought of it as like, this is actually a sexy movie. Yeah. And it's, if pornography was actually made really well and was really kinky and was real strange and with amazing actors, several of which have been nominated for like Academy Awards and stuff. Holly Hunter won an Academy Award. Um, So this is the middle of the trilogy of James Spader being super Mm. sleazy. Yeah. Because he made Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Yeah. This, and then he made Secretary 2002. It's like, how does he keep making all these skeevy roles? And then people are just like, hey, do you want to be in this too? Do you want to be Ultron in the Avengers? (laughs) It's kind of a skeezy sexual role. You're a robot. If you've never seen it, I would give it a watch. When it came out at Con, they don't always give this away every year, but they gave it the special jury prize that was literally Francis Ford Coppola, who was then the jury president, gave it because he said that it was because of its originality and for its daring and audacity as a movie, like that it pushed movies further ahead. Very French of them, which I appreciate. When it was released, it was met with like insane controversy. I remember this. They tried to release it in America with an NC-17 cut. The studio wouldn't put it out. So they made an R cut. The NC-17 cut came out. You couldn't get it at Blockbuster. You had to rent it from like Hollywood video. I remember watching the NC-17 and not really. There's like more boobs. I think you get to see James Spader's dick for like half a second. It's like. I don't think it's his dick. I think it's the. Mostly the NPA is against. Any weird sex. Mm -hmm. So them (laughs) fucking in the back of a car. Yeah. And like, it's one of those things where it's like, you see movement and implied insertion at a rate that is not like cool. Also, the other thing that they fucking hate 
is seeing a woman have sexual pleasure. Yes, they don't. They like are that. not into that at all. And people with like handy capable, you know what I'm saying? People yeah. with like leg braces or wheelchairs having sex. They're not allowed in movies to mm. be sexual characters at all. They must be able-bodied completely in order to have sexual power in movies. And I like that it's like a game. All the characters are involved in this game of like sexual chicken to see who could out fucking weird each other. I was like, man, yeah. this thing is crazy. Also, shout out to Canadian Superboy, Elias Codius. Oh, yeah. Just being weird and Casey Jones. shit in this. <laughs> oh, man, Casey Jones. He's such a great actor. He really is. Yeah. I always remember him, that little role he has in... Um, the thin red line, like, you know, just little mm. roles with Elias Cody is just popping up. Like, Exotica, it just got put on oh, the yeah. Criterion Collection. Oh, that's so great, man. Also, we're talking about the Criterion Collection a lot today. Yeah. Uh, they love Cronenberg. Right now, if you go back in time, it's a flash sale on their website. All the movies are 50% off. You're listening to this in the future. <laughs> None of this matters no. to you. I am very sorry. It's COVID brain, but I would, this is a great sale. Their Criterion channel is pretty sweet. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I recommend that as well. And you can watch a lot of these movies on there. And it's very cheap. It's like super weirdly affordable. It's like $2.99 or something. It's not that little, but yeah. It used to be. It's not like Netflix. It doesn't cost like $20. No. I know that. And it has a ton of amazing movies that you can't really find anywhere else. We'll keep moving, but if we want to talk about Crash as we go, a movie me and Brian were watching just before we went into this, three years later, he takes a little shot at video games and video game culture and virtual reality and games within games within games. In 1999, he makes a science fiction and horror film, stars Jennifer Jason Lee, who is fucking awesome in it. It has a super, super young Jude Law, once again, Ian Holm, Don McKellen. Robert Silverman and Willem Dafoe in a really awesome little weird role. And it is called Existence. Existence. It's about Allegra Geller, who is a video game creator of a completely immersive virtual reality video game. It's a little bit like Total Recall, which I'll stop talking in a second. But I do want to bring up that initially Cronenberg was also very, very close to making Total Recall. He was working on it in pre-production. He loves Philip K. Dick. He was on it. He talked about how devastated he was when it fell apart. He liked working with De Laurentiis. He wanted to make it and it just didn't end up working out. And then listen to our Paul Verhoeven episode to talk about Total Recall. Paul Verhoeven would come in with Arnold Schwarzenegger and make his version. But it's interesting that some of the pre-production of Cronenberg's version, I guess, got into the Verhoeven version and Cronenberg and he literally says this. I don't know if he's cool about it now, but for a long time in interviews, he literally was like, just don't ask me about Total Recall. Like, it gives me a migraine. It makes me insane. It was devastated when it fell apart. But why I bring it up is because Existence has a little bit of Total Recall to it. You know what I mean? When does the game start? Are we in the game now? Is this the game? What is happening? Like, wait, are we out of the game? Or is this always the... It's like crazy shit. What do you think of Existence, Nick? It's a goofy-ass movie, but I love it. It's mm. so weird. I feel like I've watched this movie too many times. It's <laughs> um I love Jennifer Jason Lee. Yeah. I think this is the hottest she's ever been. It's insane. It's Jude Law is in this, and he's just at his most punchable. Oh my god. He's such a fucking wiener. His goofball American accent. Oh my god. <laughs> like Jude Law. I love Jude Law in movies yeah. where he's shitty. Yeah. Like Gattaca. He's just oh, so upset. Yeah. Like, uh, I have this perfect life. Uh, look at me. And this movie, he's just like, 
you want me to put that in my back? It's like, dude. <laughs> or he's like trying to do it. You want me to put that in my back? Yeah. <laughs> like, dude. I why hate, don't we just let him have a British accent? <laughs> hate when fucking Jude Law is just like a groveling, weak asshole. I know. Like, what's funny, though, is like years later, obviously, he evolved as an actor. By the time he's in Road to Perdition, that accent he's doing where he's doing a weird, creepy old Chicago accent and he's a murderous little fuck. That's such an interesting character. Oh, that's such a spooky character. But yeah, I agree. He's sniveling. There's a lot of sniveling in this. There's a lot of you're going to put that weird video game penis into my tramp stamp vagina that you just gave me. It's uh, yeah, there's a lot of sexual imagery, let's say. Yeah, but not a lot of actual sex, just a lot of weird. Yeah, no, like there's it's just like, oh, this is what we think it'll be like in the future. Yeah, it's not. It's not. I remember it being super psychedelic. Yeah, the violence in this is pretty amazing, too. Oh, yeah. People getting shot with bone guns that shoot teeth and squibs, mega squibs. Yeah. So many people getting gacked. But it's a video game. You know, it's like how video games are, where he's already kind of aware, like, that Grand Theft Auto is coming. You know, I know the originals have come up, but that idea of, like, there's going to be games in the future where you can do whatever the fuck you want. And then... What will that do to your mind? And especially if you couldn't tell the difference between reality and not real life, is it bad that you're killing people <laughs> in this world? I don't know. It's interesting. But when it came out, it did not do well with audiences. I think it was a little too much. I think they should have advertised it more towards the video game nerds. And I don't think they really did. I don't think I remember I watched it in the theater. I went to the dollar 50 movies with my brother and we saw it and we liked it. But there was not a lot of people in the movie theater, even in the dollar 50 movies and like a Friday night. And it was a bit of a bummer. But uh, yeah, it cost like $15 million to make, made 2.9 at the box office. Never also really became a huge cult hit. Although I do know people who like existence. I like existence. We were watching it earlier. It's still fun, still stands up. It's super watchable. It's one of his more watchable movies because it has all the Cronenberginess, but it has that like fun. You're following these two weirdos in this adventure and you don't know what the fuck's going on. They don't know what the fuck's going on. It's wild. We're moving ahead. We're getting into, we're getting close to his return to mega cultural critical relevance. But in 2002, a movie I've never seen, a lot of people really like it a lot. Started working with Ray Fiennes, Miranda Richardson, Gabriel Byrne in a movie that got some Oscar buzz, but didn't really do anything. But it was a movie called Spider. Wait, I have seen Spider. Yeah, a long time ago. What'd you think of Spider, Nick? I think Ralph Fiennes is great, but I... I think this is the first time I was fucking bored. I know. Like, he's really good. I don't remember anything about this. Jess Rose and I rented this. Interesting. We were super fucking excited to watch it. Yeah. And then we popped it in, and it just, like, turned into one of those things where it was just like, oh, man. We just finished it just to finish it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's he's, a- he's great, and I can't fucking remember anything about this movie. I also think I rented it and I kind of blocked it out because it's, you know, it reminded me of, it's kind of like the Fisher King. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, but not as, dare I say, interesting as the Fisher King. It's about a guy who gets released from a mental institution because they run out of money and he has schizophrenia. And so he's like wandering around. He finds weird people, but it's, yeah, I, I don't know. But like you said, good actors, good actor performances, but yeah, spider, bit of a miss. But then dude, He knocks out two back-to-back, two of his biggest hits that are also big critical ones. I remember there was a Zeitgeist. I went and saw this movie on the second weekend it came out when it was getting big buzz, and that theater was packed. That was a 
packed theater. In 2005, he makes an action thriller kind of noir that's written by Josh Olson. It was an adaptation of a graphic novel. And his first movie, he would work with Viggo Mortensen, Viggo Morgenstein, Maria Bello, William Hurt, and Ed Harris. It is a movie called A History of Violence. Nick, what do you think of A History of Violence? Love this movie. It's crazy. Love it. Yeah. Uh, I saw this opening weekend. And there was no one there. Interesting. Same thing with Eastern Promises. Mm. I saw saw Eastern Promises the Monday after it came out. And there was like six people in the theater. But History of Violence, half full theater, like at most. But like people in the theater were fucking into it. Dude. History of Violence is amazing. I remember it was a big deal because old girl showed her bush. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, yeah, it's not. Like also there's like. A sex scene in the stairs. Oh, yeah. This movie is kind of hot. It's kind of hot. And also just Maria Bello. Yeah. Her career is over. I know, but she's on NCIS. Her career is over. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, everybody in this is really good. And then yeah. fucking. She's in Prisoners. Oh, I don't remember that at all. Yeah. Great fucking movie. Yeah. Just Vigo at his most badass. Yeah. I yeah except for maybe the next movie. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I say most badass up at that time. And um, I realize now that, you know, he's pretty cool in those Lord of the Ring movies. I wouldn't see them for another 20 years. So. Yeah. Apparently Howard Shore was instrumental. Apparently they became friends. And apparently Vigo was like, I love David Kroberg. I would love to work with him. He's like, you totally could. I don't know if you know this, but you're now a big movie star. You should help him out and be in one of his movies. Yeah. And, uh, and then you want to be in four. Yeah. And they worked, they worked very well together. I love Vigo's sort of understated performance of a former, if you don't know, it's about a guy who was a former hitman, ran away from that life, started another life, thought he could get away from it. And then two dudes show up at a diner yep, and recognize try him. to rob the place. Mm-hmm. And then he fights them off. Mm-hmm. And then Ed Harris recognizes from the news, shows up at his hometown, Winds up fucking just destroying Ed Harris and his goons. Oh, man. And he has to go back to uh, New York City yeah. to face his big brother, William Hurt. Yeah. Who's doing a terrible New York accent. <laughs> and I like William What's his Hurt. name in this movie? Cusack. Richie. He's Richie. Yeah. Richie. Richie Cusack. You never come around no more, Richie. Because... Mm-hmm. Vigo is Joey Cusack. He's Joey. That's his real name, but he calls himself Tom, Tom Stahl. And uh, yeah. And uh, his son, Ashton Holmes, you know, he ended up being like a TV kid, but I always thought he was really good in that movie. I was kind of surprised. He's really good. Yeah. It's, he fucking, he gacks the guy too. Oh my God. Like this time there's sex, there's violence. And it's not by the numbers, I should say, but it's truly a thriller. It is a thriller. Yeah. And that's why it worked with audiences, because it was like it kept a lot of the great parts of Cronenbergness. But he's like, all right, there will be no tramp stamp vaginas. Fine. Like, fine. Nobody has a like a weird penis growing out of their you know face or something. I've, all right. It'll just be people shooting each other with guns like <laughs> like that'll be fine. And it's great. And then we should talk about because it kind of goes back to back. I remember I also saw this in the theater. I thought it was goddamn amazing. 2005 and then 2007. He works with Vigo again. It is a movie called Eastern Promises. It is about the Russian mob in London. Vigo Mortensen, Naomi Watts, Vincent Cassell. Vigo actually went to Siberia for a year and lived with people in Siberia 
and this is how crazy of an actor he is, so that his Russian was real good. And he learned about actually how the Russian mob works and what the tattoos mean and was super into it. And he's actually speaking Russian in it. And it's wild. What do you think of Eastern Promises, Nick? Eastern Promises, uh, Vigo is better in this than he is History of Violence. The movie's better than History of Violence. Like they make two back-to-back movies and it's a step up. The plot is even crazier than History of Violence because it's just a man facing his past. Yeah. Vigo, this movie has plot twists and just straight up naked knife fights. Yeah. Oh, there is a full on naked fight where naked Russian dudes fight each other in a bathhouse to the death. Yeah. (laughs) It's fucking crazy. It's iconic now. If you've never seen it, it's about to blow your fucking mind. That scene in the theater, I remember everyone like gasping and stuff. Shit, yeah. Like it was crazy. It's a little bit of like the wolf and cub samurai story that's in like La Samurai or Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai, like where he's a gangster and he meets Naomi Watts and she's in trouble and he decides to kind of like not do what he's supposed to and help her instead. And then obviously if you don't do what you're supposed to do and you're deeply involved in the hyper-violent Russian mafia, they might try to kill you. Yeah. So, yeah, it got nominated for a bunch of awards. Viggo Mortensen was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actor. It won a ton of the Genies, the Canadian Awards. Yeah, it's crazy. It wasn't huge at the box office because it cost like 50 million bucks, but it made like 60. And it got the huge cultural, you know what I'm saying? It got the big critical response. Vigo got nominated for Best Actor. It's an awesome movie. It really is. And you should definitely watch it. After that, he's still making movies, still running around, still an awesome director, actor, writer. And um, in 2011, he makes a movie with Vigo again, this time with Kira Knightley and Michael Fassbender and Vincent Cassell again. There's a movie called A Dangerous Method. It's a historical drama. It is one of the few movies that he directed not in Canada. He directed it in Europe. It's a about World War One, and it's about Carl Jung, who, if you don't know who Carl Jung is, he's the founder of analytical psychology. And it's interesting. It's about Sigmund Freud and their relationship. I thought it was kind of a cool, weird movie. I don't know. What did you think of... Uh... I already saw this one. Oh, really? Oh, I just man. saw the sex scenes on Pornhub. That's mm-hmm. about it. There are some hot sex scenes. It's about Freud and Jung and how they kind of started with the same sense of psychotherapy and then went in two very different directions And if you have any nerddom about that kind of stuff, about psychology or psychiatry, it's up your alley because there is basically a lot of very interesting conversations and then a lot of hot sex and then very interesting conversations and then hot sex. That's basically the movie. That's how he pitched it. He was like, there's going to be a lot of um, like really psychological conversations and then just like full penetration. That's a pitch perfect rendition of his voice. Also, Michael Fassbender is an amazing actor. Viggo Mortensen's an amazing actor, and sometimes Keira Knightley's an amazing actor. So I thought they all three were great. It's a cool ensemble movie. It uh, didn't do great at the box office. It did okay, though. It got nominated for a bunch of stuff. It had a $14 million budget, made 30 at the box office. So not too shabby. The movie Nick keeps referencing in 2012, he would work with Batman, a movie starring Robert Pattinson, Paul Giamatti, Samantha Morton, Juliette Binoche. And Kevin Durand, Jay Barishaw. <laughs> uh, it is based on a Don DeLeo novel called Cosmopolis. Came out in 2012. Nick, what's Cosmopolis about? Cosmopolis is about 
Robert Pattinson pretty much riding around in a car all day. <laughs> There's <laughs> one set. Yeah. People come in and out of the car. He's sort of like, has like a third person narrative about it. Mm-hmm. But it's, I really like it. I also have liked most movies R. Pats has made Agreed. since his vampire days and that one movie that wound up being about 9 11 because he was like a plane <laughs> crashed into him. Why did he make that? Anyway, I don't know. He was a kid. He yeah, he was a kid. I did not think this is as good as The Rover. Ooh. I think this came out the same year, yeah. but this is a very good movie. Yeah. It's not the best. It seems like more of like an experiment. Yeah. Like, oh. can we shoot? Can we get a bunch of cool actors and Jay Burchell to pop into a limo <laughs> and just do these scenes? Yeah. They're just like taking different takes and seeing what sticks and, you know, it's a good movie. It's just not not groundbreaking. No, it definitely is like he's in full conversation mode. Yeah. There's a lot of conversations. The whole movie is kind of conversations. Yeah. They're interesting. But if you're looking for like the crazy action you saw in History of Violence or in Eastern Promises, not in this movie. The body horror is not there either. <laughs> no, but he did go like the way the design of the limo and the design of the technology that apparently Robert Pattinson plays this like whiz kid, kind of like a, you know, any sort of tech giant who's in his early 20s, but made an absurd amount of money off of tech. And so he has all these weird technological things. And he's going back to that a little bit, which I liked. I thought it was cool. Yeah. It's like the... Canadian independent version of Waiting for Andre. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of a good way that has a little bit of like a sci fi edge because of the strange technology that this guy is responsible for making. And is it good or bad that he's made a sort of weird version of Facebook or something? It's interesting. We're getting close to the end here in 2014, or at least close to up to date, I suppose I should say. Yeah. He's still making stuff. 2014. He made a surprisingly interesting movie, not surprisingly interesting, but a movie that kind of blew my mind. Because he is Canadian and he made mm-hmm. such a fucking polarizing film about you, like, just watching horror. Taking a shot at Hollywood, yeah. real Hollywood, it would be a kind of a reason why he didn't make another movie for like seven years, I think. But he talks about it in some of his interviews. We should talk about, we're talking about a movie that came out in 2014. It's called Map to the Stars. Stars Julianne Moore, who's amazing in it. Got nominated yeah. for Best Actress. Mia Wasikowski. John Cusack. Robert Pattinson, Olivia Williams, Sarah Gadon, and Evan Bird. It's about actors. It's about Julianne Moore plays like a famous actress who's kind of at the waning end of her career. She also was the daughter of a much, much more famous actress who like fucked her up. And it's about Hollywood. It's about how fucking dastardly everyone is. And everyone's trying to fuck each other over and steal stuff from each other. And it's sexy too. There's some sessiness in it. Mm. There's some definite sessiness. And I don't know what you think. Oh, we were talking about it, but I love this movie. Really? Yeah. I remember we rented it. I, I bought it on Blu-ray and we watched it. Yeah. I saw this in New York and then I just would not stop talking about it. I saw it at the Nighthawk and I forgot what fucking food or drink special they had to go with it, but <laughs> it was very appropriate. <laughs> like they nailed it. But like I just remember like it was there's small theaters in New York, but it was packed. It was the middle of the day. I'm pretty sure everyone was stoned. And there's a scene where a kid drowns and she does this victory dance around a pool over it. And everyone in the theaters is like, what the fuck? What the fuck? There's a lot of what the fuck in this. Yeah. Well, the biggest what the fuck for me is the terrible CGI fire that 
they put on somebody when she fucking like burns to death. Yeah, he didn't have a ton of money for his special no, effects. That's- he definitely kind of had a little bit of weird body stuff to it this time again. Just a little, just some little touches. Yeah, just like, like scars and yeah, shit. Uh-huh. But also it's just like the remnants of body horror is still there. The, like the body horror in this one is much more psychological. It's just the fucking trauma mm. of everybody's past because yeah. Mia Wikikowski, she's hiding some weird trauma and the real reasons she's there. And like you said, Julianne Moore is haunted by her much more famous mother. And then, Oh, there's like a weird threesome scene where oh, yeah. her mom pops up and shit. It's so weird. And Cusack's like super desperate to try and get things back from like, he thinks he can like get her to work and be good again. And he's like so desperate to do it. It's really like, he's like a televangelist masseuse. Yes. He thinks he has these powers in his hand to do things. And then really, you find out later he has no control over his family. No. Oh, there's that young kid. This is the other part that's amazing where he's like shitting in Hollywood. There's that young actor who just got out of rehab. Yeah. He's Benji. like fucking 15. Yeah. He's like addicted to like GHB or something. Yeah. Like really weird. That too. People are doing weird drugs. I heard him talk about this movie and it was interesting because he was talking about this and a uh, history of violence. And it was like, well, I think that because I'm Canadian, that, adds this element where I get to see these things through a little bit of a different lens. I work in the industry. I deal in America a lot, but I don't live there and I see it from a different side. Although he did refer to Canada as America's underdeveloped twin. (laughs) I was like, that's fascinating. That's a fascinating way of putting it. But that's also Cronenberg saying that Canadians. All right. I didn't say that. This also might be his funniest movie. Dude, it's why it is a comedy. It's a black comedy. And Robert Pattinson is amazing. As always, but yeah. man, he's so good. And it didn't do great at the box office. But once again, like we said, Julianne Moore got a uh, nomination. It got critical praise. But uh, yeah, because then after that, it would be eight years. Me and Nick have yet to see it. It has the same name as one of his early movies. Has nothing to do with it. He just likes the title Crimes of the Future. It came out in 2022. Has Vigo, Leia Sudo, and K-Stu. Kristen Stewart. It follows performance artist duo who perform surgery in front of audiences in a future world where human evolution has accelerated for some individuals. Yeah, that's that sounds wild. I want to see it. I desperately want to see it. I thought I was going to watch it today. Yeah. And then it turned out being stuck in a restaurant for 14 hours is not the best <laughs> place to see a movie. His movies haven't made money in years in the box office. But I think these like French companies that he works with who produces movies, A, just love him. And, yeah. and they always do well at con and stuff. And then also all of these movies, a lot of them will make money in the secondary market or they're at least bouncing the idea that he'll continue to make cult hits. Yeah. Also, it's just like, how cool would it be to say, oh, hey, uh, I'm Brian Tepps. I produce a Cronenberg movie. It'd be, it'd be awesome. It'd be pretty sweet. It'd be you fucking great. Get to hang out with him. Yeah. And if the movie loses money, you get a tax write off anyways. It also, from what I understand, is back to him doing a full bunch of body horror in this movie. There is a lot of weird shit. Oh, yeah. I so, cannot wait. Yeah, I'm excited. All right. Well, we'll do our final takes on Mr. Cronenberg. But before that, I think it's time for the Blockbuster Film School dumpster. Something like that. Nick. If you had to toss one of those films in the dumpster, which one would it be? Uh, I'm going to go with Jason X. <laughs> he acted in that. He wasn't Jason X. 
Yeah. <laughs> he's in a lot of like weird. He hangs out with his friends. He shops with yeah. horror movies. Also, all the horror movie nerds know who he is. Yeah. And, and if they could get him to be in their movie for even a minute or two, like. Have you seen Possessor yet? No. His son directed that. Oh, yeah. I it's heard about that. super Cronenberg-y. Awesome. I've watched it while I had COVID. <laughs> I still don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> okay. Because it's well made, but at the right. same time, it's like there's no one to care about. Interesting. I would check it out. I would check out a movie by his son for sure. I would definitely do that. He's also in some episodes of Star Trek Discovery. But yes. So, Is he? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. He also directed. Did you watch that, Brian? You're shaking your head like you know. Oh, God. Okay. He also directed an episode of Slasher, which is the series on Shudder that they have. So I haven't seen that yet either. But. I will toss Naked Lunch in there. It's, it's not even good weird. It's just dumb weird. And Robocop. I can think of two things wrong with that title. <laughs> and I think the big thing, too, is that, like, no offense to Peter Weller, but sometimes Cronenberg's movies are saved by having super charismatic performances. From, Peter Weller's not charismatic no, at all. No. Peter Weller's a good actor. Right. When it's a good role. But, like, his flat delivery. Yeah. While all this crazy shit's happening, is not really selling the movie. If he is Dr. Brundle in The Fly, it doesn't work. No. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, not that he could do it, but I'm saying, like, even if you had young version of him being Vigo in History of Violence, it just doesn't work. But, yeah, I'm going to toss that one in there. Yeah. But of mega fails, they're better than a lot of, you know what I'm saying? At least it was completely bananas. And if you want to... I would say on that one, just YouTube it, like type into YouTube craziest parts of Naked Lunch. I'm sure they'll just have the wildest bits of the special effects. That's what you should look at. I'll bet you that's like 10 minutes long. It's solid. All right, Nick, it's time for the Blockbuster Film School Wall. So, Nick, what's your number three on the Blockbuster Film School Whoa. My number three is going to be The Fly. Ooh, I'm surprised. It's, it's a fucking classic. Super and classic. Just Jeff Goldblum having pus come out of his face. Oh, my God. It's so popping disgusting. Off. His hair turning into a mop. <laughs> That's so true. It's so fucking nasty. Like, it's nasty. It is nasty. Ugh, I agree. It's so grotesque. I love it. I love it. My number three. I'm going to say is, you know what? I'm going to do it. I think it's existence. I think that movie is wildly underrated. It's still super fun. Jennifer Jason Lee is awesome in it. And if you like, if you like the weird Cronenberg stuff, but you also like psychedelic stuff and nineties, bizarre sci-fi. If for you, it's a movie for you, Nick, what is your number two? I'm fucking going with shivers, honestly. Yeah. It's so fucking creepy. It is. It's it's also, I don't know why I didn't realize that was his movie. Oh, interesting. Because I had seen it, like, saw it, like, you could watch it streaming. Yeah. And it was at Blockbuster all the time. I never knew it was a Cronenberg movie. I didn't see it until I was in my 30s. Crazy. And then I watched it. I was like, what the fuck have I been doing? <laughs> what am I doing in my life? It also has that like kind of piss and vinegar sometimes with like debuts, you know, where there's like an energy to it. Yeah. You know, where everybody's acting their ass off and everybody's just trying as hard as they possibly can. And it's real weird. I like it. I agree with your decision. My number two is so spooky and good, but also kind of romantic and sad in a way. It sticks in my mind. I think about it sometimes. It's the dead zone. I love that movie. 
maybe his most poetic really of all of them. And I always thought him and King worked well together, like the sensibilities. And I always was a little surprised that Cronenberg never made like another movie based on a Stephen King thing, but I thought it was cool. I thought it was fun. Nick, what is your number one for Mr. David Cronenberg? Long live the new flesh. <laughs> you going to put your gun in your little slit pouch in your belly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Chest vagina all day. Number one is Videodrome. Yeah. It is demented. Like you said, there's no real plot. He just finds something and then you go off in a direction and it fucking ruins the rest of your life. It ruins it. <laughs> I love it. It's so good. It's so fucked. Yeah. It's bananas. My number one, there's many. I mean, I love Scanners. It's an amazing movie. And I, but if it was truly blockbuster and it was truly the wall and I really was like, you never seen a Cronenberg, but you don't like the body horror, but you like crazy shit, you need to see Eastern Promises. Vigo as a crazy Russian gangster, it is wild style. It's just one of the wildest gangster movies that has ever been made. It's interesting that Cronenberg and Scorsese are friends. And this is kind of Cronenberg kind of tipping his hat and making his own Scorsese movie. It's very, very wild. And you really should see it. And there's a there is a straight up naked knife fight. There is a naked man knife fight at the end. So if that's your thing, they hang dong. They hang dong. All right. There's like balls bouncing around while dudes are stabbing each other. It's crazy. And I remember seeing it and I'm like, oh, I don't need the body horror. If I just have a bunch of grown men fighting each other naked and wet and they're sliding around and falling and into porcelain. I'm like, this is nuts. And I don't even need to make a wet like penis monster. There's literal wet penis monsters fighting each other. Real ones. So, yeah, that's the Blockbuster Film School Wall. That's going to do it. Any final thoughts on Mr. David Cronenberg, Nick? Thank you. <laughs> uh, David Cronenberg deserves to be up there with the Wes Cravens, the John Carpenters. Oh, he definitely is. The Christopher Columbuses, the <laughs> all the other directors whose last name starts with C that are regular household names with all these fucking normies. Yeah. Cronenberg is the king of body horror, mm. but it should be celebrated. There's just not enough people going, you know what? I want to feel sick to my stomach. Yeah. Let's watch Brendel fly lose his jaw. It's crazy. He needs like, we need to pick a Canadian holiday we've never heard of before. Yeah. And do the American version here where it's just for David Cronenberg. I'm into it. I'd rather we change Columbus Day to Cronenberg Day. And we just broken social scene would know we're talking about. I'd be into it. Way more people would be into it. Yeah. You'd have to sit around watching Cronenberg movies and you make like a cake that looks like a penis or something, but it's not really a penis. It also sort of looks like a roach. It's like, okay. Yeah. And you're like dick roach. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) It has like crab legs on the side of it. Yeah. So I love David Cronenberg as well. I think, yeah, he absolutely belongs in that pantheon. He is definitely one of the greatest directors ever come out of Canada for sure. Uh, one of the greatest directors in the history of Hollywood. I think his stuff is amazing and unique and I love him and uh, I'm glad he exists and I hope he keeps making crazy ass movies and I hope he has some super successful movies again that put him back into getting big money to make crazy shit. (laughs) I really do. I think he could still do it. He's only 79. He's got plenty of time. Hey, Ridley Scott's like, hold my tea. I'm going to be 110 years old yelling at people on the set of Alien 9 or whatever. It's like, holy shit. So, yeah, that's David Cronenberg. Thank you guys for listening. If you want to follow us, Nick does a great job on the Instagram. Thanks to Mr. Brian Tepps, who's an amazing human being and super producer. Um, I'm Alex Bonner with Nicholas Satter. We love you guys. 
And always remember, if you make a teleporter, do not fucking get into it. Or at least make sure there's no flies in there. Okay? Just pro tip. We love you guys. We'll see you next time.